0: This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of different tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com forward slash BE. That's IXL.com forward slash BE. TL Talk Radio
1: Season 5, Episode 35. Welcome to Season 5, Episode 35 of TL Talk Radio, a regular podcast with Lynn funy and Randy Zigenfus, where our goal is to engage you in learning, motivate you to share your work, and inspire you to lead for the change we need in schools for the digital age. I'm Randy Zickenfoos
2: And I'm Lynn funy
1: And we're talking about the digital age today, so this is a really, really appropriate guest that we have on today. Looking forward to chatting.
2: Yes, today we're talking with John Couch author of Rewiring Education, How Technology Can Unlock Every Student's Potential. And certainly this is a topic that we can connect with as we have um, made available many resources for our our learners and we are working towards personalizing our learning environment. So looking forward to hearing this experience-based approach to these ideas um, with John today. Uh, As Apple's first vice president of education, John has always been a proponent of personalized learning. Uh, He was recruited by Steve Jobs in 1978, becoming Apple's 54th employee at the time. He left in 1984 to help a struggling K-12 school in San Diego that is now a National Blue Ribbon School. And at Jobs' request, Couch returned to Apple in 2002, tasked with bringing education into the digital age. He was Apple's representative to President Obama's National Education Technology Plan and Connect Ed initiative, and has been awarded a Distinguished Alumni Award from the University of California, Berkeley, and an honorary doctorate from the University of Philadelphia for innovation in education.
1: So, welcome to the podcast, John.
3: It's my pleasure. Thank
1: you. All right. We really appreciate you spending your time to talk to us about your work and especially about um, your most uh, recent publication here, Rewiring Education. So let's kick off our conversation with a bit of a personal story. Tell us about your journey to this idea of educational technology and how you think it can unlock the potential in every learner.
3: Sure. Well, you know, I actually found my high school yearbook, uh, dated 1965. And in the book was a salutation from William Selectman, a fellow student who went on to West Point. And he wrote, Couch and Aristotle are still are synonymous. (laughs) Uh, Keep memorizing those problems. Um, And that's, you know, and I realized looking back that that's how I spent my high school days fundamentally memorizing everything. And that led to, you know, National Honor Society, uh, you know, small scholarship to college. And um, it was an approach that I applied at the university as well until my junior year. In my junior year, I was a physics major and I walked into the final exam and there was one question on the exam. And it was to describe the motion of a spinning top in free space. Which had never been covered in the lecture, nor was it present in the book, and I watched a whole class of really smart people panic because we hadn't memorized that formula. And we, I didn't really think about you know stepping back from it, visualizing turning a top with certain amount of force in an attempt to derive the equation because that's not what they taught. Mm-hmm. They taught us fundamentally how to how to memorize things. Fortunately. Uh, I had a friend in college who um, the next semester said, look, I found a great course for us. And I said, what is that? And he goes, it's Horticultural Science 120. And I go, what is that? He goes, forget the name. It's computer programming. It's the only department that can afford a computer. And I realized (laughs) in that class that there was no way to memorize coding. That in coding, you had to, Visualize your data structures the relationships with your data structures you were given some inputs and then there was you know A desired output and there was more than one way to get to that output That fascinated me Mm -hmm. and so I decided right then and there and then my junior year That I wanted to you know do more programming So when I looked around the United States for a school university that had an undergraduate degree in computer science the only one I found was UC Berkeley. Most schools had math degrees with a minor in computer science or electrical engineering with a minor in computer science but UC Berkeley had broken out of the engineering department a pure letters and science computer science program and um, so I transferred to Berkeley um, I finished my bachelor's in four quarters and then I went on to graduate school there but um that experience of coding has um, impacted my, my whole view on education. And as Joe Ito said, education is what people do to you. Learning is what you do for yourself. Mm-hmm. Mm.
1: So it sounds like uh, you had some qualities that I'm sure parallel a lot of our students today. And that is, it sounds like you are early on, at least, really good at playing the game of school.
3: <laughs> well, that's, you know, that's what it was. I mean, they fundamentally asked everybody to, uh, you know, jump through the same hoops at the same time. Um, and uh, I saw a lot of what I felt were really smart people that, that sort of struggled in school. And, it, you know, it puzzled me somewhat. Um, but, I you know, I soon realized that we are all gifted uniquely. And... Um, you know, it's that passion for something that should drive the learning. Uh, in other words, intrinsic motivation is is crucial to learning. And unfortunately, our schools tend to focus more on en- extrinsic motivation.
1: Mm-hmm. And it, it sounds like it was that serendipitous crossing of the paths with that, that one course that sort of jarred that shift in thinking for you.
3: Yeah, it opened up, you know, it opened up... Uh, a whole new world for me of of problem solving. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, prior to that, it was pretty easy to look at the at the at the questions in the book and and realize that the solution to the problem was fundamentally applying an equation, mm-hmm. uh, even though we may have not even understood what that equation did. So, for instance, we memorized the parabolic curve, but we had no idea which coefficient lengthened that curve or which coefficient Widen that curve. And so the true learning hadn't taken place. What had taken place was a short term memory
2: mm-hmm. success. Well, thanks for your thanks to your friend for guiding you to that class.
3: He's <laughs> still a good buddy. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah. It's amazing that you're able to really uncover your passion, you know, pretty, uh, although maybe a little later than, than you would have liked and as your junior year in college, pretty early in life.
3: Well, you know, to me, that's what the number one. Mm-hmm. role of the teacher should be, mm-hmm. help each student uncover that, that, that unique gift and, and their passion. I think my daughter probably uh, put it more succinctly to me. She said, dad, for 14 years, I've been pushing the education ball up the hill until mm-hmm. I realized where I was gifted and what I was interested in. Now I can chase the learning ball
2: down the hill. Mm-hmm. Well, let's jump into the book and start with um, this idea of rewiring education. You know, you've given us a few little hints at what that means to you. Um, What else can you share? And and why is it important for us to think about that as school leaders, district leaders, um, community members, families, um, as we work towards moving from, from education to really learning?
3: Yeah, I think, you know, the point that we made was that fundamentally uh, there are two things happening in education. Uh, One is uh, throwing the whole education world out and starting from scratch. And yet, uh, you know, I don't believe in that because if you really look at education and you look at high school graduation, uh, it's gone from 10% in 1912 to 84% today. Uh, But you have to go deeper than that Um, because if you look at the fact that, um, you know, you look at the number of students that are graduating, yes, um, it's about 84%. But then you look at the number of students that are graduating from college uh, six years later, it's only 54% of that 84%. So it's fundamentally almost only 30% graduating from college. So yes, we've been successful with our standardized education, but if you look at really much deeper in the world that these students have to go into, it's not the case. The other approach has been you know, kind of a patch approach. Let's let's limit the number of students in a class. Let's do X, let's mm-hmm. do Y, all these short-term things, which haven't seemed to, to change anything. Mm-hmm. Um, so our, our view was that we needed to rewire education which meant we needed to meet the biggest challenges we faced. And we, we you know, we listed about 10 of those in the book. Um, meet the needs of a new generation of students who have mm-hmm. grown up in a different world. Leverage the academic research that has been done because we really haven't integrated it into the classroom. Change the classroom learning experience from one based on memorization to one based on something as relevant, creative, where the students are the creators, not just the consumers of content. Something that's collaborative, Vygorsky tells us that we learn from each other. When I went to school, collaboration was called cheating. Every project I had was a single-person project. <laughs> and finding something that's, that's challenging. You know, raise the expectations for the use of technology. Unfortunately, too much technology is being used as a substitution. We're doing the same thing mm-hmm. in the classroom we did before without the technology, right? Um Enable individualized learning. Meet the student where the need is. Uh, Empower and upgrade the role of the teacher from one of a a member of a union to true professional with ongoing professional development. Define a new set of ABCs, which means students have to have access to technology. They should be building things, and they should learn to code. And and lastly, of course, is visionary leadership. Um, It takes visionary leadership to make these kinds of of changes. So at Apple, we developed challenge-based learning which really was a pedagogy that allowed students to get outside the classroom, go into the community and solve a real problem. And the interesting thing about challenge-based learning is everything from coding to starting a company is the same process as the pedagogy for CBL. So rather than focusing on tactical things, step back up and design a curriculum based on challenge-based learning, which has been done by a school in, in Mexico called Varmon, And I think you're gonna see much more of it uh, in the future.
1: Hmm. Interesting. So so much of what you say in the book, so much of what you're saying on the podcast really resonates with us. We're in the same paradigm, the same kinds of shifts we're looking for. And and as we're working to shift things here in our school district, we focus a lot on vocabulary and sort of the way that your chapters are set up. But I really appreciated the chapter on learning, which I think was chapter five. And you've got this great table in there where you make the distinctions between learning and learning. And what we typically sometimes confuse with learning, education. Talk to us a little bit about how you're framing those two um, words differently: learning and education.
3: Yeah. Well, first and foremost, it goes back to you know Dr. Ito's comment from uh, you know MIT's Media Lab that education is what people do to you, and learning is what you do for yourself. So, um, but I think you know what we what I wanted to do there was. You know, and it's, it's kind of ironic because a lot of the things that are in my lectures in terms of charts and data and, and uh, justification for what we say, I wasn't allowed to put in the book. Mm. That was one of the few charts <laughs> they allowed me to put in the book, right? Because uh, our, our publishing industry is probably just as archaic yes. as our educational industry, right? Yep. But, you know, the point being that education was about delivery. It's about delivery of content, uh, not the discovery of content. Um, the you know it's it's limited to the four walls of the classroom rather than opening out into the into the world. It's uh, extrinsic motivation, you know, versus intrinsic motivation. Uh, it's all about grades and certifications rather than experience. And when I look at the people that Apple hires. We don't hire based on grades and certifications and degrees. We hire based on experiences. How, how will you as a member of a team solve a yet unsolved problem? Um, and so, you know, that, that was the, the, the purpose of that particular chart. There's another interesting chart that wasn't in the book that compares uh, the IT infrastructure required in a business environment versus that in an education environment, where everything's locked down in a business, but in an education, it needs to be more more open. Uh, it needs to be about learning. It's not so much about um, the total cost of, of uh, total cost, but the, the total cost of opportunity. Um, and um, that that's helped me a lot in dealing with the IT people to say, look, your infrastructure supports the administration, but it doesn't support a learning environment for mm-hmm. the students.
2: That's a really interesting total cost of opportunity—a different way to look at it.
3: Yeah, hmm. yeah. And you know, I mean, to me, and I, you know, um, I learned a lot from Steve. You know, and, and you know, Steve shared with me originally his vision for Apple, his why for Apple. Simon Sinek, who's also a good friend has written a great book called start with why
0: Mm
3: -hmm. Steve Steve could articulate that. Why? Because he pulled it out of a scientific American article where they measured the efficiency of motion and man was a disappointing, you know, bottom of the list, but someone had the foresight to run the rerun the test with a man riding a bicycle, which obviously amplified his physical ability. So Steve saw technology as an amplifier for our intellectual ability. Not to take us where we've already been, but to allow us to explore, to create, to innovate. And I and I believe the re- that Apple's successful today because that why still remains. The whats have changed: mm-hmm. a personal computer to you know to an i iPod to a, to an iPad to a watch. But in every case, it's technology empowering us to have a better better life.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: And um, so when I deal with schools, I ask the school, what what's your vision? And if the answer is not uh, about the student, then I know that I'm kind of wasting my time there.
1: So as we uh, implement this uh, vision for uh, transforming learning and, and the classroom, we need to look at the role of the teacher. So let's shift the spotlight to the teacher, the adult learner in the classroom. And what do you think are the... What are your ideas about how the role of the teacher changes uh, in this transformed learning environment?
3: Sure. Uh, you know, um, I had my own personal experience there because, as you know, if you read the book, that my son Christopher, who is now 44, was four years old when Steve came into the house, put an Apple two in the kitchen table and, and told him he could have it if his dad went to work for him. <laughs> And uh, that little guy has ridden that metal bicycle to state history fairs, to the University of Pennsylvania, uh, engineering major, and, uh, minor in design uh, column in a daily pen when I was told I was either left brain or right brain and I had to choose. Um, and, um, you know, uh, when I left Apple and enrolled him in school in Southern California, he was in sixth grade, there was not one computer on the campus. So he did the professional development by writing hypercard stacks that showed the migration of the Roman Empire animated through Europe. And I, I realized at that point in time, am, am I putting him in a, in a learning environment where he can only learn what the teacher knows? Or can I create an environment there where Chris can go at his own pace, follow his own, his own passions? Riding, you know, his 10-speed bicycle, if if you will, intellectual bicycle, and so I I view the teacher as a as a partner, as a guide that is actually learning at the same time. So, for instance, when my younger son did his project on deformed frogs, there were no books in the library on deformed frogs, there were no mag- scientific magazines on deformed frogs. The teacher didn't know what, the, you know, what the purpose why the, progs were being found with three legs. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it was a joint learning effort, if you will, between the teacher and the, and the students, and particularly my son. And, and that's what CBL does, is it is it takes the classroom from the sage on the stage to this symbiotic relationship between the student and the teachers, you know, going after and solving a problem at the same time. Now, as I mentioned earlier, I really believe that, the role of the teacher is to help the student find their, their unique gift, their passion, um, to set the stage for innovation, not for short-term memorization. But I also feel that we've neglected our teachers, that we've, in fact, asked them to do the impossible. The example in the book, again, without the chart, unfortunately, was a fifth-grade class in Chicago, Illinois, where one student was reading at the eighth grade level, one student was reading at the first grade level, six different reading levels in the classroom, the time that it would take the teacher to find the appropriate learning activities for six levels was more than 40 hours a week, which means we're asking students to, we're asking teachers, if you will, to um, schedule a miracle. You know, and I used to tell Steve, I believe in miracles, but only God can schedule them, right? (laughs) So that also, you know, with technology coming down the road, adaptive learning, AI, um, you know, all of these new technologies, blockchain, we need to provide ongoing professional development for the teachers in the same way that we do for accountants or lawyers, you know, or financial uh, institution.
2: Well, thank you for sharing that. It's a question that we're really thinking about in our district of how does that teacher role shift and, you know, what are the how do you operationalize that that shift too? So we yeah, have, o- have a big
3: challenge there. You know, I, I spoke to the state of Montana a couple months ago, and the superintendent shared with me they were 128 teachers short mm-hmm. of starting the school year. And wow. so um, I have a good friend of mine, uh, Mallory, who started a school, Oxford Day Academy in East Palo Alto, and we are now working with Oxford University to called. Um, Oxford Teaching Academy, and unlike Teach for America, where they may send, you know, my daughter to Alabama or to some foreign country where she's not that familiar with the culture, our goal is to model the teacher um, creation, if you will, similar to the internship of the medical industry. Mm. So another. We want to pull a teacher out of the community that she's from. Mm-hmm. She knows the churches, she knows the community, she knows the people. At the same time, mentor those those in, um, interns, if you will, mm-hmm. uh, and enroll them in the Oxford Teaching Academy. Mm-hmm. So the average the average salary in rural America is about twenty nine thousand dollars a family. So if I can pay an intern thirty thousand and pay a mentoring teacher mm-hmm. eighty thousand. Have that intern have enrolled at the same time, so she's going to get a certification from Oxford University. But she knows the community, she knows the kids, and so that's a, a new program that that um, that Mallory has put together with Oxford University. Mallory has is a Rhodes Scholar, has her PhD from Oxford University, and her MBA at Harvard under Clayton Christensen, you know, the disruption king. So it's <laughs> it's, it's one of those things that I'm involved right now in terms of. How do we address the teacher shortage? But at the same time, as we train these teachers in a new pedagogy, okay, we can go to a rural school and say, You're five teachers short. You spend ten thousand dollars on recruiting a teacher. You pay us five thousand and we'll put a teacher into your school. Mm-hmm. So it's you know, it's 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 a it's a new idea and one that we will be testing.
2: Win win. Hope so. so. Hope <laughs> Before we invite you to share what's next for you, John, we have added lightning response questions to our podcast this season, and the purpose is to identify some additional resources for our listeners. And you've already given given us a bunch. Start with why and challenge-based learning classroom guide. I linked in um, Christensen Institute. I'll link that as well. But here are three quick questions. Are you ready? You bet. <laughs> Who's one expert? our listeners should connect with to learn more about uh, using technology and education to really personalize learning.
3: Uh, okay. If, if we're talking about the technology component, then I would say Marco Torres. Marco Torres works for, um, Karen cater who used to work for me, who runs, uh, Karen runs digital promise. Uh, Marco really knows how to integrate technology in, into learning mm-hmm. and, in fact, um, I've been working with him recently because he's actually using challenge-based learning to unpack the common core standards. And it's really, really impressive because I think one of the things that, that, that we were negligent, if you will, at Apple was to connect CBL to the standards.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Marco, Marco is doing that. Great. Um, if you ask me, um, You know, who else I read and follow, it would probably be Ken Robinson
2: Mm
3: -hmm. from an institutional change perspective. And, of course, Todd Rose, uh, who wrote End of Average, which is a book everybody, every teacher and parent should read.
2: All right. Thank you. And finally, one last question. Um, Is there an online site or resource or other person from whom you learn regularly?
3: Uh, you know, it's, it's a a lot of people, you know, one advantage of having written a book is you get, you get a lot of input. People send a lot of stuff to me. And, uh, but, uh, you know, we've also created our own, our own website, rewiring education where we try to collect a lot of, of the best information and share it with, with people. Um, but one of the, one of the inputs that I got, which I found fascinating was from an individual that's, um, Uh, has kind of resurrected um, um, Friedrich Froebel, who invented kindergarten in 1846. And his concept of kindergarten was that children are created in the image of God and therefore should be creative souls. And so everything was about movement and dance and nature uh, and exploration. And he created what he called the Froebel Gifts, which were nine sets of, I hate to call them blocks because they're not necessarily blocks, but they're, they're, they're a toolkit, if you will, for learning. And they're still used at the Graduate School of, of Ar- Architecture at MIT. And Frank Lloyd Wright was fascinated with these, and which is kind of ironic because his son was the one that created Lincoln Locks.
1: <laughs> but
3: I bought these two kits for all of my grandkids. And, it's, and what they do is they'll go out in nature, and they'll see something in nature, and then they'll come back into the classroom and build it in abstract. Okay? Now, if you think about what happened, you know, kindergarten came over to the US in the late 1800s, really about the same time that the 1912 essay was written by the Board of Education, funded by Rockefeller, that said, we don't need artists, and we don't need doctors. We need people to do you know, things in a perfect way. And what we did, we integrated kindergarten with the public school system, and we moved first grade into kindergarten. So we've made kindergarten all about literacy, when it should be all about creativity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And in fact, if you look at the Nassau land test, it shows that 98% of five-year-olds are creative, 2% of adults.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: What happened? You know, education. Mm-hmm. And I think that's all. That's all we're trying to do is 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 you know raise the consciousness, uh, the reality of the situation. Is their schools were defined in 1912 for a different society. What we have today, be the change, mm-hmm. because I don't believe education is going to change top down. I believe it's going to change bottom up as as we as parents and teachers, uh, you know, start start to change. And so. My old boss used to say, how do you move a 20,000-pound marshmallow, right? <laughs> if you push on it, it pushes back. It's one bite at a time. And if we get enough people taking bites, and, and, and that's the purpose of my next book, by the way, called Education Rewired, which is looking at about 100 different schools around the world that are taking bites, that are rewiring education, that are taking bites of that, of that marshmallow,
1: it is certainly a conversation that is growing. We've, we've thought over the last even three to five years uh, that that conversation about transformation is definitely uh, snowballing, and more and more people are getting on board with that. So it can't happen fast enough.
3: Yeah, unfortunately, I think people tend to look at, you know, tactical stuff, like, you know, patching. So I had a, about an hour and a half conversation with, with um, Betsy DeVos, uh, who, who I think's heart is in the right place but her whole focus is on charter schools. Hmm. But if you don't change the pedagogy going from the public school to the public charter school, then nothing's going to change. It's going to be more of the same. You Mm -hmm. You, You know, Gates did all this research on class size, but we didn't change the pedagogy. Right. So, you know, and in fact, it's interesting when I retired from Apple at age 36 and, and took over the school that was, that was fundamentally failing. It was in debt. It had a 30 day lease on the property. What people wanted to know was what color should we count? Should we should we paint the buildings to be successful? You know, and and that's not the answer at all. No, it's
2: not the right question either.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Exactly, and that's the big thing about challenge-based learning Mm -hmm. is questions, asking the right questions. And you know, there's a lot of talk about AI right now. Okay, and I think AI will work well if you've got a if you've got a knowledge map, say outside Sal Khan's knowledge map, where this map is, is fundamentally static and you have choices, branches, AI can help you make those choices. But I think when, when you have something like challenge-based learning, where a challenge represents maybe a subset of the tree, not a particular node, we need to ask more questions. AI is going to have to ask more questions in order to be effective in the classroom. Well,
1: it's been great having you on the podcast, having this conversation. We actually um, crossed paths with you a couple years ago when you were at Hershey, Pennsylvania. You did a uh, talk there and we were very engaged. That was pre-book time and you had actually given (laughs) us a little hint about that upcoming book. Um, So we appreciate you spending some time with us um, today on the podcast, but before we wrap up, what's next for you, John? What are you working on that you'd like to share with our audience?
3: Well, I think, um, you know, obviously the next book, Education Rewired, um, I'm also, uh, I've, I've formed a nonprofit organization uh, called Beyond School, and my goal is to work with Varmon and a software company called Notion that have built a challenge-based curriculum from age three through ninth grade uh, based on the uh, 2020 U.N sustainable goals nice and make that hopefully make that freely available uh to the world Wow! particularly i've 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 funded some schools in africa and um and i'm doing a lot of work we have a movie coming out in the fall called sound of freedom which is a true story about an individual that's taking on child trafficking um i've written 30 songs by the way that are in spotify and, and iTunes under the uh, under the Eden Inspirations uh, label. So, and one of those songs is for the you know is about child trafficking, and I just did my first music video in Cuba on child trafficking. So, everything I'm doing is about children. My belief in the in the potential of the children, and just trying to get these a conversation started. Um, you know that we need to change. We need to change education into a more learning environment. And so the the first book was sort of a high level uh, you know, strategic look at it. The second book is a much more tactical. It says, here is a hundred schools that are doing specific things. So if your school isn't doing those, you know, why not? And then I what I'd really like to do is follow that up with a with a book on challenge based learning that shows how challenge based learning can map to to standards. How uh, we can how we can um, use challenges to meet all of those standards. It's kind of interesting. If you look at the standards, you know, we group them in three groups. The first group is, oh, yeah, of course. The second group is we can Google. And the third group (laughs) is so esoteric that nobody ever meets them. Or every teacher interprets, you know, what needs to be done differently. So we want to use challenge-based learning to break down those standards, again, to produce a knowledge map so that we can measure a student's individual progress as, as they go through school.
2: So very diverse and exciting work. Thank you so much for sharing that with us, John. And thanks also for joining us uh, to learn more about John's work and projects. You can check out the show notes. We linked all the resources he shared and even some information about the upcoming movie, Sound of Freedom. So lots of things there.
1: Each episode, we leave you with a couple of questions to think about, and today we've got one with the idea of provoking some conversation. This episode's question, how are you helping your learners uncover their unique potential to reach beyond their perceived limits? If you've enjoyed today's episode, would like to comment or just find out more about the resources and links that John shared today, check out the show notes at tltalkradio.org and look for Season 5, Episode 35. That's all for now. We'll be back soon with another episode featuring another innovative thought leader. Thanks so much, John.
2: Thanks, John. Bye-bye. My pleasure.